Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. This is the first podcast of 2022, which is kind of crazy, exciting, but also, yee! I was looking for a photo I took on the Ohio State University campus, I thought, two years ago, and as I was going through my phone photos, I realized it was really five years ago, so yee! That's a little scary. Um, We've been doing this podcast weekly for a really long time, and I'm excited to welcome in 2022 with all of you. Um, If you look forward to this podcast every week and find it really valuable to you, I would love it if you would go and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people find us and access all the information that we're sharing. So if you do one thing today as a new sort of kickoff to 2022 and you want to make that reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, I would not complain. I would be very excited. So thank you. Um, I know it's January, but we're actually going to be talking about the summer, summer program specifically in today's show. But before we go to that, we're going to switch it up a little bit. And we're actually going to lead off with your questions. And joining me for that, as she so often does, is my colleague, Shannon Vasconcellos, who also happens to be a former financial aid officer at both Boston University and Tufts University. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Um, We have lots of questions. So let's kick off with one for you. Okay. And here we go. This one comes to us from Lisa, who asks, if you've applied early decision, but your financial situation has changed since applying, um, in this situation, your father hasn't worked since October, can you ask admissions for more scholarships if admitted? Absolutely. And in fact, you can, if your financial situation changes, you can go back and let the school know that at any time, um, whether it's you apply early decision, regular decision, if it's the summer after you've enrolled, if it's midway through the school year and you've been attending, you can still, and a parent loses a job, you can still go back to the financial aid office at that point and ask for reconsideration of your aid package. Uh, as we, we've talked about probably a number of times along the way, the FAFSA form that you're completing to apply for financial aid is always out of date because it asks for your financial information from the year that's two years before the year you're applying right. for aid for. So obviously a lot can happen in two years. Um, and as Lisa's family has found out, a lot can even happen in a couple months since you applied early decision. Um, So you can absolutely go back to the school, ask for reconsideration uh, of any financial aid offers based on your change in circumstances, and you just want to lay out the case, explain, give dates, facts, figures, when your father lost his job, uh, how much that decreases your income, all of that, ask for reconsideration of a financial aid package. Um, and hopefully they are willing to do that. Hopefully they award you some nice, generous scholarship funding. Um, if they don't, there is always that fine print in the early decision uh, contract that you're essentially 
signing, when you apply early decision, you are agreeing to enroll in that school if they accept you. But there is fine print there that says you can get out of that commitment if um, the finances make it impossible for you to attend. And this is the exact kind of situation that that fine print um, is meant to allow for. It's not really meant to allow for, well, I thought you'd give me a whole lot more scholarships and I was hoping for more scholarships and you didn't give them to me. So I'm going to withdraw for that reason. That's not really what that fine print means. It's exactly this situation. My, my financial circumstances a few months ago when I applied early decision uh, would have allowed me to pay for this school and now they don't. And here's why you want to lay that out for the financial aid office. Um, and just the quick thing, just because Lisa used the word scholarships, and I don't know how exactly you're using that term because the terms here can be confusing. Usually when we use the term scholarship, we are, asked, we are talking about merit-based money uh, as opposed to the need-based free money is usually referred to as grants, but that's actually not always the case. There are some schools have started calling the need-based grants scholarships because it kind of sounds more prestigious and they figured out that more students will come if we call our money scholarships instead of grants. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to here if you're actually speaking about merit scholarship money because you did either didn't qualify for need-based financial aid or um, never even never applied for need-based financial aid. Um, if that's the case, I mean, you can always ask for more merit scholarship money um, and they may or may not say yes or no to that, to that question, but I think your change in financial circumstances certainly warrants them taking a second look. If by any chance you did not apply for need-based financial aid up front, you should do so now. And I think that's the first question the school would ask you if you went back to them and said, I can't afford the school anymore. You know, can you reconsider my scholarship funding? They'll say, did you apply for financial aid? If you say no, they'll say, well, do it now. Uh, and again, you'll just have to go through the documentation process of that income that's showing up on the FAFSA is not really reflective of your family situation now. And you hope that they take that into consideration and award you a nice, fat, generous financial aid package. Um, but if they don't, you do still have that out in the early decision contract. If that school really is not affordable to your family anymore, you can get out of your early decision contract and go someplace more affordable. Cool. Yeah. And um, so the first question for you, Beth, um, ooh, is about calling a school when you don't like their decision. Is it ever okay to call a college after a denial or a deferral? Uh, and if so, who should you call? Sure. Um, so I actually read that as who should call, who should be the one oh, making the call. call. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a couple of things here. First, we did a show on December 16th all about what do you do after your decisions come in, if you were deferred, if you were denied, if you were accepted, that kind of thing. So I would encourage everyone who is eager to hear this answer to go back and listen to that show from December 16th. Um, what I will say is this, the colleges will generally let you know um, what kind of contact they will encourage 
after a deferral um, in this specific case uh, or a denial. And um, in some cases, they'll even provide a number for you to call or they may provide an email address for you to email to. Um, you know, in general, I actually, not all schools though, I will say, will, will welcome a phone call. So you want to kind of take a look and see. And sometimes even if they don't say anything about calling, you could always call and ask to speak with someone. Um, if you're a student, I think that's one thing, right? You're calling to just maybe better understand the decision. If you are deferred, I think the approach there is a very, hey, I'm excited to still be in the running. I'm just curious if there's anything that I could, that you were missing or anything that I, you know, you need an explanation for. So it's more of a information gathering type of call. And never really do I encourage a call to say, I can't believe you made this decision. Uh, you know, explain it to me or something like right. that, right? That's that's not the goal here. Right. But, but when I saw this question, one thing that I did want to address is the idea that, um, like, who should make the call? So certainly great for the student to engage with the admissions office, especially if the admissions office provides a number and, you know, sort of encourages that engagement. But it is also okay for the school counselor to make a phone call. And I know we have a lot of school counselors who listen to the show. And so I wanted to directly address that population. Now, I will preface this by saying that um, many of you do not have the time to be making these phone calls. Totally get that. Um, what I want to address is the idea that you might be afraid to make that call. Like, oh, they don't want to talk to me. They don't want to hear from me. When in point of fact, actually, many of them would be very, very happy to have a conversation with you. Um, especially if you, if there is a decision that is somehow, I don't know, mystifying to you or surprising to you in some way, and you really just want to better understand. If Same thing as when a student calls, attitude is really important, right? You don't want to call up and be an angry person. And I'm sure our school council population is thinking, oh, I would never do that anyway, because, you know, this is a relationship and you know you're going to have other students who are going to apply in the future. And, you know, you know that this is going to be an ongoing thing. For the student, it might be a one and done. So it's even more important from your perspective that it's a good relationship. But you know, if you get a decision that really surprises you or is not in line with decisions you've seen from that school in the past and you know because you wrote the letter of recommendation or you collected the students' materials and sent them off that it's a good application and you assumed that the student would be successful, um, I think those are times to call with the caveat that Anytime a school is admitting less than half of their applicant pool, you do sort of have to be careful to assume much of anything, right. um, especially as those numbers get lower, right? So if they're accepting only 30% or 20% or 15% or 5%, you know, that's the time where we start to figure like, okay, I really have no idea what's going to happen here. And the decision, you know, if Stanford turns down your kid, um, that is the highest flyer you guys have had ever come through, it still probably shouldn't be a shock. Um, it doesn't mean you can't call and have a conversation. But especially when a school that either routinely admits students from your school and for some reason this year did not admit students of the, the same kind 
or didn't admit anyone, or you've never had a student apply there, but you know that this student who did apply looks a lot like the average accepted students at that school. These are all reasons why you might want to call. And the questions really are just, hey, I want to understand this. Are Have your standards changed? Are you looking for a different type of student? Did you get double the applications that you usually do. Um, we're seeing that a little bit. I know that in the early round at Auburn, they had, or it may, they maybe do rolling. I didn't double check it. But what I know is that at by the midpoint of December, they had 115% more applications than they'd had the year before. And that makes for decisions that are probably going to be a little surprising. So understanding the context, I think, is really important. And then also important for future years, like, wow, this school is becoming more popular. I would have said it was a likely school before. Now I'm thinking maybe it isn't. And so that will help you also to guide future students. So I just want to encourage counselors everywhere that it's fine to pick up the phone and make those calls and that my experience as an admissions officer and my colleagues' experiences as admissions officers is that those calls are typically welcome and the admissions officer would be happy to have that conversation and help to explain context if there is an explanation. Um, yeah. So, all right. Out of my own curiosity. Sure. As an admissions officer, how prepared are you to have that phone call? If an admissions, if a school counselor calls you, asks about a specific student, are you then kind of looking through their whole application? Do you have like notes on sort of reasons why they weren't admitted that you're immediately going to? What does that conversation kind of look at like from the admissions officer's perspective? Well, the way that we did it when I was at Penn is that they would, whoever called in would have first talk to an assistant who would take down the name of the student they were calling about, if they were calling about a specific student, and then pull the file and so I would have the file. Now they read online, so my guess is it's a lot easier to look something up. Yeah. But in general, we would have a heads up so that when I returned the call, I knew what it was about. Um, how forthcoming an admissions officer is gonna be about a specific file is really gonna depend on the admissions officer their right. comfort level with the, the counselor that they're talking to, um, with their with the school's policies, you know, so the school right. may have a policy of, you know, we don't disclose anything, we don't discuss the student's file with anyone of the other than the student. So, you know, in you may not get some good info about that student in particular. And that may ultimately not be the goal. The goal may be to get broader context around you know, what I might say to a counselor that when I was an admissions officer, who I didn't know would be to explain, you know, I, you know, I get that this represents some of your best students. Let me help you. Let me explain what a really excellent applicant looks like uh, to yeah. us. And I might explain, you know, expectations. I'm thinking specifically about a student that a situation like this when I was at Penn, where the student was a great student at the high school, but not at all it had not achieved at the level that we would have anticipated at Penn. So helping that counselor who was brand new, who was actually not really a school counselor by training and who kind of had filled in on the fly, helping her to understand what our expectations were. And those calls can be helpful for that as well. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think it's less that unless you have a relationship, I don't know that they're going to get super specific with you about why the student wasn't admitted, but they can often provide some bigger context around it. And then it might also be an opportunity if the student was deferred to, if you feel strongly, hey, the entire school population supports this student. We, you know, this student is someone we love, we would love um, we know that the student really likes this school. If that's true, if that's something you feel confident and comfortable saying, it may not make a difference, but it may they may make a note in the file and just, hey, this is a big, mm-hmm. they have a lot of fans, this student. And, um, you know, that could be nice as well. But again, not the goal of the call. I think really the goal of the call is to understand the context of a decision that you found surprising in light of, of decisions that have been made in the past. Gotcha. All right. Well, we got through a whopping two questions. Um, We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to hope to get through at least two more and maybe a little bit more than that. So uh, stick around. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are answering your questions, uh, and we're going to jump right back into it because we have a lot and we only answered two. So, Shannon, you have another one for me. I sure do. So it's another deferral question. I think this is a a popular topic these days. Um, My question is, if you're not accepted ED or EA to your first choice school, is it better to be deferred or waitlisted? You seem to hint that being deferred from ED, EA is a nice way of saying they don't want you. Is waitlisted any better or does it depend on every school and how many they take off the waitlist? And then my second question is, if you are waitlisted, what guidance do you have for what to put in a letter of continued interest if you don't necessarily have any new awards or things to tell them about? Okay, so first of all, not every school waitlists in early rounds. In fact, that seems to be gaining in popularity, but it's a relatively new phenomenon. And uh, I would say that you're not going to find it at most schools. Uh, but if there is a school where they defer, they both defer and waitlist, what, what would be better? Deferral is absolutely better. A waitlist means they're not considering you in the regular decision round and if at some point they do need to pull students off the wait list, then now you're on the wait list. But to me, it's a nice, that's a nice way of saying no. A deferral, on the other hand, in theory means you are going to be considered in the regular decision round. And I say in theory a little flippantly, and I shouldn't, because it does mean that you will be considered for the regular decision round. However, there are schools where they only defer in early, and therefore, 
they are, in my opinion, missing a big opportunity to cut the cord for some students who will not have any shot at all in regular decision. So you're saying they only accept or defer. Exactly. They don't deny in the early round. That's exactly right. Maybe as good as a denial, but it may not. But it may not be. And unfortunately, you have no way of knowing because they have let no one go, right? So a school that actually, um, I think, does a pretty good job of this is Stanford. They have their terrible single choice early action, which I rail about from time to time just because it's strategically not always your best move and they are limiting your other choices for early. But we don't need to talk about that today. However, what I do really like that they do in early action is they admit, they defer, and they deny, and they defer very few students. So if you get deferred, you legit have a shot in regular as much in as much as anyone has a shot when the acceptance rate is somewhere around 3%, right? Which is right. to say, not much of one, but you have a shot. Because right. what they really try hard to do is just get rid of anyone who does not have a shot in the regular decision round. Um, at Penn, we would probably do about a third, a third, a third. We would admit about a third. And again, this is going back. I'm not sure they do. It's quite like this now. They're not necessarily admitting a third of the pool in early now, no. in early decision. Yeah. In fact, I know they're not. But we tried hard to get rid of or let go of a big chunk of students who we knew were not going to make the cut in regular, had no shot at it because we just felt like, let's let them go. They can move on to other choices. And I really think that is the um, the way to go. And in fact, when in my own territory, when I was an admissions officer, I really tried hard to let go of anyone who I knew would not have a shot. I tried not to do courtesy denials or deferrals and, you know, like just a nice way of saying no. It's not, you can't do that all the time, but I really tried hard to because I felt like I don't want to keep stringing people along. Right. Um, so, and and then I think as you get to different, now those are very selective, rejective schools, right? But when you look at other schools where they're admitting a bigger percentage of their applicant pool, a deferral really truly could just be, hey, we got so many more applications in the early round than we were anticipating. We don't know how many of those students are going to come yet. We need the dust to settle and we need a couple more months. We need to see who comes in our regular decision applicant pool. But I find that those students are still very much in the mix. And it's not unlikely at all that those deferrals will turn into acceptances. So, you know, it really will depend tremendously on the school. In terms of wait lists, we're going to do... Um, a, a session on waitlists in in a few months when decisions come out. So I would anticipate that you will see a segment on this in April of 2022. Mm -hmm. um, we've done waitlist segments before. The advice doesn't really change from year to year. But what I would say is that if your student's already been waitlisted, just hold off. There's no need to update them now, especially if you have nothing to share, right? So if you really, there's no new honors or awards or anything new, then just sit on it. Let's see what else comes through. Because the other thing is that once you start getting your other decisions back, that school that waitlisted you may suddenly become a whole lot less interesting. So if you are following up on the waitlist today um, in early January on a decision that, and now you, you don't know any of your other decisions yet, or you know some, but not all, 
your opinions about that school and feelings about whether or not you will attend are likely to change quite a bit between now and May 1 when you would be making that decision. And then in mid-May, which is when most schools will start to think about their wait list. So I would recommend that maybe you do an update sometime in early April if you're still really interested in that school. And at that point, you may find that you do have things to update them on. And if you don't, then it's something as simple as maybe, hey, I wanted to reach out and let you know that since I applied in the early action round and I was waitlisted, I still am extremely interested. I have all of my offers, but I would still choose to attend your institution if I do come off the waitlist. Maybe you could provide um, some information about a program that's really interesting to you and why. Um, if you've developed a greater focus on a particular major, that major at that school and why. So it doesn't all have to be about your accomplishments. It can also be about making that connection between you and that institution. Right. And the school basically does not care if you're still interested in them in early January. That's not a shock to them. What they care about is you still being interested in April, May, June, after you have your other decisions. That's, that's exactly would make a difference to them. Exactly. And that's because honestly, they they won't be going to their wait list until at the earliest that they would go to their wait list might be April if the acceptances or students committing to them weren't coming in as quickly as they had hoped. But right. that's the earliest that they would be going to their wait list. So they're focused on the rest of their class right now. If you're on the wait list, they're not thinking about you at this moment. So let go and don't think about them at this moment, and you can always come back to it. Um, All right, Shannon, I have a question for you. On the CSS profile, it asks how much we plan to pay for our daughter's educational costs. What amount should we use? Our expected family contribution, the amount we've saved, or something else? So this is my very favorite question on the CSS profile, or it's my favorite question to talk about. How about zero? (laughs) How much will we pay? How about zero? That's our hope. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of the time we're saying, you know, the schools aren't trying to trick you in any way. Just be honest, you know, just um, they're not reading between the lines. Here's a question where... I think they might, they are kind of reading between the lines, or you may be surprised at how they're, they're looking at this question because it's not something that's sort of out there. So with that question, they, they do ask on the CSS profile, the family, how much do you expect to contribute to your child's year in school? Um, and what the schools may do with that question, and, and different schools treat this question differently. And of the two schools I worked at, one looked at it one way, one looked at it the other. And I think these are the two main ways schools may look at it. Some schools just ignore that question. So really, <laughs> doesn't matter at all what you put. They don't care. They're skipping over it. But other schools, and this is what one of the schools I worked at did, they will go through all their calculations using their standardized formula, come up with an expected family contribution. Then they will look at what you quote, unquote, I'm making air quotes for <laughs> not watching the video. They'll look at what you offered in that question. If you offered more money than what they calculated your contribution to be, they may use your offer 
as mm-hmm. their expected contribution. So if this school, let's say they went through the, the formula, calculated this family can pay $10,000 a year. That's what we'll use in determining financial aid eligibility. Oh, but they said they were expecting to pay $20,000 a year. We'll use $20,000 as their mm-hmm. expected family contribution. So um, just be aware of that potential treatment when you're answering that question. Um, I would say you don't want to risk offering more than what your expected family contribution is. So, you know, you might want to do an expected family contribution calculator, use that kind of as your guide. Um, You could say, as you suggested, Beth, you could put zero. (laughs) And and most of the time that would work just fine. The only reason I don't tend to suggest zero, unless that's the God's honest truth, you really can't contribute anything. And I was being funny just for our listeners' sake. That was me (laughs) attempting to be funny. But okay, yes. Right. If you really can contribute zero, then absolutely zero is fine. Put zero. If you make $300,000 a year and the school sees you expect to contribute zero, in most circumstances, honestly, it would be fine. It wouldn't change anything. But if for whatever reason you ever had to go back to that school and um, appeal for additional funding, bring up special circumstances, ask them to be more generous with you. They don't love seeing a zero for that question. It just kind of puts the financial aid officer in kind of the wrong mood and where they'll say, really, you know, you make $300,000 a year. You can't come up with a hundred bucks for your kid, anything. It's really zero. It annoys them. (laughs) You don't want the financial aid officer being annoyed when they're reviewing your appeal. So I generally suggest offering up something but don't risk going over your expected contribution um, because the school may then use that as your contribution and you don't, you want that contribution to be as low as possible. And, and just to clarify too, if the EFC calculator shows an expected family contribution that you feel is not something you can afford, you probably should put something less than that, right? Then on that line? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can absolutely put less than your expected contribution. Now, will the school care that you put less? No, they're going to go with the higher number. Sure. Of course. <laughs> but, but yeah, absolutely. And it does go back to the sort of general recommendation of be honest there, put what you think you can actually put. The school will likely say, sorry, <laughs> we, we sure. think you can contribute more and that's the number we're going to go with. But in any case, you don't want to risk going above the school's number. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I think that's a um, very helpful. I didn't know any of the answers to that question, so yeah. now I do. All right, what do you got for me? One more for you um, from Andrea. She says that I know from previous podcasts that it is advantageous to take a foreign language throughout high school. Does Latin check this box or is it seen as a lesser choice due to the lack of a spoken component? I've never thought about this. Great question. Uh, I haven't either. And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, (laughs) Latin is tough stuff and colleges recognize it that way. Uh, I would say that there are no lesser than foreign languages, nor more than foreign languages. Maybe it's a little more unique to see a student taking something like 
Japanese or Russian or Italian, just to throw out three languages that we don't often see taught in schools. The most common languages are definitely going to be French and Spanish, and then probably followed or maybe even equivalent with Latin, although I see that a little less. And then maybe next would be Chinese, very popular to offer Chinese or becoming more popular to offer Chinese. Um, and um, probably German also is something that would not be uncommon to see, mm -hmm. but uh, there isn't a hierarchy. I think it used to be that Chinese would be seen as like a real wow factor, but m more and more students are taking it. Um, I think if you're taking, if you're Chinese studying Chinese, again, it's not a problem, but if it's your native language, then I guess English is really almost your foreign language. So not really a problem to do that, but even more impressive if you are Chinese, you speak Chinese at home and you study a different foreign language, that can be a nice to see. But um, no one that I have ever encountered would think of Latin as less than. Um, because again, it's really challenging and uh, just because it's not a, a, a live language where you're speaking it, I, that's not really an issue. Um, the other thing I just quickly that I wanted to touch on is, you know, why take a foreign language all through high school? Not all colleges expect it, but there are plenty that certainly expect to see a couple years because a lot of colleges these days have a foreign language requirement in order to graduate. So if a student really doesn't like the foreign language, one reason to stick with it is because you might be able to test out of the requirement when you get to college if the college has one. Um, no foreign language at all in high school can start to narrow your options. So maybe you do the minimum that the school requires, but if you are gonna be looking at more selective schools, I encourage taking four years or maxing out the language option. Um, you know, for some students, that means that they could take it through junior year, but there may not be a higher level for them in senior year, whatever that looks like at your high school. Uh, okay, Shannon, I want to double check here. I don't think we don't have time for one more question for you. And I'm sorry about that, because um, I always learn good stuff when you are um, uh, joining us. But uh, thanks again for being here today and answering the questions we were able to get to. You're so welcome. My pleasure. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, believe it or not, I know it is January. For many of you, there may even be snow on the ground. But we're going to talk about summer and I don't know, maybe that's not a bad thing because it's nice now that the holidays are over to kind of dream about nice weather. So don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome, everybody, back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is January. I'm in Massachusetts, and there's snow. Um, But my colleague who's joining me to talk about summer uh, is in Hawaii. There's no (laughs) snow in Hawaii in January. Um, Welcome, Landis. How are you? Hey, Beth, I'm doing well. Yeah, it's, a, it's around 73 degrees, I think, right now, December 15th. Uh, lovely winter day. Yes. So uh, Landis is late of Chicago, so we can't begrudge him his current location in Hawaii. Um, That's right. And, uh, and you and I work together here, but you used to be an admissions officer at Dartmouth and Northwestern. Um, and so today we are talking about summer programs. It does feel appropriate that you should be in Hawaii while we do this. Oh, um, yes. Summer all the time. Exactly. Let me, let me start with um, a really basic question, and that is um, when our listeners watch this or view this, um, it's January 6th. Is it too early to be thinking about summer? No, it's not. It is not too early to be thinking about summer. You should start thinking about it as soon as possible, you know. So when you're thinking about kind of your entire kind of high school plan, summers, even though you get a break, are still something that you have to coordinate and that you have to start thinking about. How do I parse out that particular time when I have the ability to do interesting things, when I have all of this free time? So you should start thinking about that as soon as possible. Right. And uh, yes, it's amazing to me that even in my own house, my son and I have been talking about the, this coming summer. Now, granted, he will already be accepted to college. And, sure. you know, so we're kind of thinking more along the lines of when are you going to be going to school and what is time does that leave? Do you keep the current job you have? Are you going to need to look for something different? Right. But mm-hmm. it isn't too early, especially, no. excuse me. For students who are going to be doing interesting things. So where do you recommend that students start, right? So Mm -hmm. here it is. It's January. They're like, it's Uh summer. I don't even know what, how do I think about this? Right. And so the first place to start is to kind of do a self-assessment. Think about what your interests are. Think about what you feel like you want to spend your time doing. Maybe, for example, there is a subject area that you're already really interested in. So maybe you could get a little bit deeper into that particular subject area. Maybe there's a new subject matter that you haven't even tried yet, and you want to experience what that type of academic uh, experience or opportunity will be. So you can start thinking about, okay, is there something out there that I want to try that I haven't done yet? Uh, You can also start thinking about, okay, do I want to start looking at volunteer opportunities? Do I want to have a job? But the basic first step is to start doing a self-assessment. What do you feel like you want to explore? What do you feel like you want to do? And how do you want to craft that summer so that you get something out of that experience? It really is about stretching yourself and thinking about how you want to grow. And then fundamentally, you start to think about what are my goals for this particular experience? So again, that self-assessment is the number one thing that all students should do prior to start thinking about crafting an actual activity for their summer. Right, right. And I think like a great example for me of that would be, you know, sometimes I have students, they're really good in math and science. And so because of that, they will, or their parents will say, you know, well, maybe engineering. And I think summer is a perfect time to explore that because typically you can't take engineering in school, right? right? But there are a number of different programs where you could explore it and see, well, just because I'm good in math and science 
do mm-hmm. I like putting them together in this way right. and doing engineering, right? And so right. at a very basic level, you're getting out of that summer, yes, engineering or hell no, engineering. No. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Because <laughs> that's another thing that students should be open to as well is that trying these experiences over the summer will let you know what you don't want to do. So yes. thinking about that as well is also an opportunity to, again, stretch yourself and have understandings of what it is that you want to do. Very similar, like there will be some like finance summer programs and students don't typically get to take finance in high school, right? right? So again, thinking about those things that may not be offered at your high school and finding a structured activity over the summer can be very useful in that way. Yes, absolutely. So um, great advice on where to start. So, okay, so now you have ideas We've just mentioned you finance, it's engineering, maybe it's I want to improve my writing or I want to, you know, I'm already, I already see myself as a writer and I want to be in a community of writers, Mm -hmm. any number of things, right? right? Where do you go to find the actual opportunities related to those ideas? Right. So the internet is a wonderful thing. Yes. You know, so being able to utilize that resource is going to be very important for you. A couple of good sites to start looking into. If you're interested in STEM, for example, there's a website called pathwaystoscience.org, which is a great one to let students see what kind of opportunities are out there in STEM-related fields, Mm -hmm. especially in the summer uh, for high school students. And then if you're interested in maybe looking for volunteering or something like that, volunteermatch.org is another great website to look into to find experiences and opportunities to build those type of volunteer activities if that's something that you want to do. Those are just a couple of examples of sites that are out there. So the internet is a wonderful resource to begin. The next resource that I would encourage students to do is to kind of just network within their high school itself. Talk to your guidance counselor. Typically, guidance counselors or college counselors often receive a lot of mail, email, kind of really kind of soliciting students to participate in activities. So there'll be a great resource for you to find out some activities that are connected to some of the things that you're interested in. Also thinking about the academic disciplines that maybe you want to look into, talk to the teachers that you have in high school that are related to those fields. And they'll be able to think about giving you access and opportunities to different things that you may not have thought about or heard about. Also networking within your family, talk to your parents or close uh, loved ones, uh, guardians, anyone like that, and try to network within those particular communities to start building things like jobs or looking for internships. So those connections can also be meaningful as well. But foundationally, if you start to network and you start to really kind of think about the people that are surrounding you and the community in which you live, those are going to be some excellent resources to get you on your way to start thinking about what is it that you can actually do. And again, using the web resources, doing a quick web search, uh, using some of those websites that I indicated, yes, that would be a good way to get you in the right direction as well. Right. I love the idea of networking, too, because a lot of times when you do that, that can uncover opportunities that are A, unique and maybe only available to you, but B, not expensive or possibly free. Free. Right? Free. (laughs) Free is key. We love free. Because one of the challenges with a lot of the summer programs that are out there, and I I held up one engineering programs, but they they do tend to be programs that you have to pay for. And they can be exceptionally expensive. And that's not always realistic, right? Right. Um, So that networking 
you're building a really good skill also that will serve you well in life. But at the very basic level, it can uncover unique opportunities that you don't have to pay for. And and that's always a positive. That's key. (laughs) It is key. It is key. What do you, you know, so we talked about kind of figuring out what you're interested in and what you want to explore I can't be the only one who has had a student who is sort of look at me blankly like, I don't know, what do I want to do this summer? I want to go to the pool or I want to go to the beach every day or I want to sit and play video games every day. Um, What's your advice when a student really just doesn't know what they want to explore? Right. So for everybody, there is actually something that you're going to be interested in. I'll go back to what I said uh, toward the top of the conversation. You know, do that internal assessment. Figure out like you don't like if you know you don't want to be stuck in a uh, part-time job you know you maybe don't want to do uh working at a fast food restaurant or quick service restaurant or something like that then you can cross that off the list right Right. Um, Right. if you know that like okay i think i want to be in an online program Mm -hmm. you know i don't want to actually have to travel far from home in order to participate in something again that can be one of those things that narrows down that list for you. But the foundation here is to really do an internal assessment to think about what do I like to do? What do I want to do? What are some of the things that I haven't yet tried that I can use during the summer uh, opportunities to try those things? The great thing about uh, summer in general is that colleges don't have any specific requirements for what it is that you do during the summer. Instead, what they want to see is how do you use that free time? So, Beth, you and I both know that, like, after high school, you don't get those summers free. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Never. Right. You never get those summers. So thinking about how it is that you want to build that time and you to, again, develop some new skills. Think about some of the things that you haven't tried yet that you want to try looking to subject areas that you are already interested in that you want to push even further. So again, colleges don't have any specific requirements. They just want to see that you do something with that time because they want to see how it is that you're expanding yourself and showing that you have growth and potential that really does help in the overarching admissions process. Right, right. And hey, if you want to go to the beach every day, then are there jobs on the beach that you could do, right? Can you be a parking lot attendant? Can you be at this working at the snack shack or something right. like that? I mean, right. maybe that's not what you envisioned. You know, maybe you really right. wanted to be on a blanket and <laughs> swimming, but at least, you know, that gets you in the environment that you like. Right. Um, I think sometimes two students um, who really don't are sort of like, there's nothing I'm interested in. I just, you know, like, I just need to sit. You know, maybe then what would interest you is making some money so that you have more choices of what, you know, you have things you want to do or buy or Mm -hmm. you have a car and you want to put gas in it so you can go somewhere, you know, a job. And so, like, what are your thoughts about just a plain old summer job as as an activity for a student? I think a summer job would be great, right? It shows that you have the ability to have time management skills. It shows that you have uh, the opportunity to have good customer service skills. And really that maybe you're just looking for, you know, some change to line your pockets or things like that. But either way, it is something that you can do, again, that shows that you are able to build your time, manage your time to understand how it is to work with other people in different environments. So if you want a summer job, that would be fantastic. Typically, students are looking for summer jobs that do have to do with maybe quick service industry, but also things like working at a camp 
or mm-hmm. volunteering and things like that, or looking for possibly paid internships that can mm-hmm. be con- connected with the job as well. But I think that a summer job would be fantastic. Again, it also, in addition to showing time management skills and showing your ability to have strong customer service skills, it shows a level of maturity as well. Yeah. You know, you get into that job and you have to like kind of be on your own in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And it also shows that you are good at listening and participating in teams as well. Because right. oftentimes those summer jobs are going to be having you working with other people. So those are some great benefits of having a summer job. But again, it's not a requirement. If it's right. something that you feel like you're attracted to, you're drawn to, excellent. If you feel like, ah, I need to finally get my PlayStation 5 or something like that, right? right. It's like, okay, fine. Get a summer job if that's something that you want to do. But again, always go into any summer opportunity understanding what you will gain from that experience. It's more fundamentally important in the application and admissions process that you understand everything that you're doing and that you have a reason that you're doing it. Colleges don't really care about what it is per se. They really want to know why you do it. What's your motivation? How is it that this particular activity, whether or not it's something that you do in a in your high school related to one of your clubs or activities, whether or not it's something that you do over the summer, what was your motivation behind that? What pushed you towards participating in that experience? And what values and meaning did you derive from those opportunities? Those are going to be fundamental, again, in the application process. Right, right. And it could be that something interesting that you do the summer between sophomore and junior year becomes something you write about in your essays. Absolutely. So, right, so there is there might be an opportunity to really bring in those pieces into your application if the summer experience was a meaningful one for you. Mm -hmm. And you might derive meaning, as much meaning from working in a grocery store over the summer as you do from interning in a venture uh, capitalist office, right? Like so, or a venture capital firm office. It is, it is, I love what you're saying, which is that it is less what you do and more why you do it and what you get out of it that is really going to be the most impactful when it comes to your application. That's right. Yep. That's right. That's absolutely Landis, thank you so much for joining us today. I really You're appreciate welcome. it. All right. Good seeing you, Beth. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, enjoy the weather there in Hawaii. And meanwhile, the rest of us will be <laughs> suffering through the cold. Um I did want to encourage our listeners. I want to thank uh, Landis for being here. I want to thank um, Shannon for being here. Next week, Ian is hosting. And one of the things we're going to be talking about is income-driven loan repayment plans um, and you know how to think about those and whether or not those are really will work for you and your future career. Um, I'm not really sure what else we're going to talk about, so you're going to have to tune in to find out, but I guarantee <laughs> you it will be related to the college process. Um, also, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. So if you like the show, please go and review us. Also, uh, if you have questions you would like us to answer, send them to us. You could send them to us at Facebook. You could follow us on Facebook. You could send them to us via Instagram at collegecoachbh. Um, you can email them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning, if we've covered a topic of interest to you, we blog about every podcast. So go to our blog and search there. It's blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. 
Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.